All right, if you will, please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 11, the 11th chapter. We're going to be primarily in Mark chapter 10, but I'm going to start here in Mark chapter 11. Our theme is fear and the triumphal entry. And today we are going to look at a passage that's tied to the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. This is historically one of the most important events in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And as we come to April 5th, 2020, the day we would be having Palm Sunday at Christian Fellowship Church, we recognize that this is an historic day. And that is why historically at Christian Fellowship Church on Palm Sunday, the day that this falls is the day that we would have a service filled with much fanfare. And instead, here we are in quarantine and we are separated. And if we weren't in a quarantine and if we weren't in a world that's facing a lot of fear because of this virus, we would have one of the most joyous services of the year. We had planned once again to have children come through with palms and we had a music planned that I think would have reverberated throughout the entire congregation. I'm thankful though that we can still have music through the video, but I know and you know it's not the same and it's not the same without me being in your presence and you being with me. I want to be with you. So as we come to this day, you could say, well, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of positives that are going to come out of this, but there is a little twist here. And I'm hoping that this study will be one of those positives. And you say, how's that, Mike? Well, because of the fact that I don't know if I would have ever seen how much fear was tied to the triumphal entry. And I'm going to show you that here in a second. And that is sort of a, a blessing out of this quarantine, if you could have a blessing, is that I think maybe years from today, if the Lord doesn't re return, you'll be able to look back and say, wow, you know, when I studied the triumphal entry, now I know that there was this aura of fear, and I saw how Jesus handled it, and how Jesus got his disciples ready for the Passion Week and all that they were gonna face. And so I hope this is a blessing. For you as we are living in this time this quarantine and we're getting all kinds of information there's all kind of uncertainty we don't know when we're gonna get back together we thought two weeks and four weeks and uh, you hear ridiculous statistics of how this is growing exponentially and you don't know if it's true that it'll be like three months four months and so you get confused and you get um, full of anxiety you get frustrated and especially watching the news because things seem to be changing every day. And so as I watch it, I hear these statistics and I do get confused and I like math. And so I was thinking, I'm sure you're just like me, that you're hearing these statistics of how it's growing and other people dying and where they think it's going. I think, and then sometimes they correct themselves and you don't know which statistic is true. So I've got a statistic for you. I don't play. I, I'm a, I am not a doctor. <laughs> I messed this joke up. This is a joke. I don't. I am not a doctor, but I watch a lot of doctors on TV. Okay, I watch a lot of doctors on TV because my wife makes me watch these medical shows, and so I know that the following statistic is 100% accurate, and you can rely on this. And that statistic is this: statistics show that those who have the most birthdays live the longest. You get that? I found that in Reader's Digest and I thought I'd like to pass it on to you, that fantastic bastion of truth or 
wonderful articles, the Reader's Digest. Statistics show that those who have the most birthdays live the longest. So find peace in that. There's a statistic you can rely on, okay? There's my joke for today. Mark chapter 11. As we turn to Mark chapter 11, you see in verse 1, As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount Olives, he sent off two of his disciples. Who did? Jesus did. And what we have here is the incident that is known as the triumphal entry and the preparations for it. You see in verse 2, it says, he says to them, Go to the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied um, on the door outside of the street, and uh, or at the door outside of the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, why, what, what are you doing untying the colt? Verse 6, they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread their leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those went in front, and those were in the back, shouting Hosanna. Now, the, the getting of the colt was the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, that he, the Messiah would come on a donkey and as a symbol of peace, and Jesus did exactly that. There's probably anywhere from 100,000 to a million plus. We don't know exactly what the crowd estimate could be, but we know that up to 2 million people would come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And Jesus has come for the Passover feast. And so the incredible number of people that would have been along the road, the number of people that would have been at the gate that Jesus was going through into the city would have been, I believe, in the tens of thousands. And it had to be an incredible scene as they quoted out Psalm 118. That's Psalm 118, verse 9 says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And this is an incredible shout and affirmation of everything that Jesus has been doing for the past three, three and a half years as we think his ministry went last. It was an affirmation of him being the coming king, the one who would have been the Messiah. But what's the problem here? Well, the next verse. Jesus entered Jerusalem, verse 11 says, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany and the twelve, since it was already late. You have, like I said, tens of thousands, perhaps 100,000 plus people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. What's the problem now? Well, it's nothing happened. Nothing happened. Jesus should have come into Jerusalem and been recognized as king. And it's sort of a sin of omission. I always tell you the four ways that sin impact us, the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act. And the fourth is a sin of omission. This is a sin of omission. They did not recognize Jesus as king. The leadership as well as the people, they didn't accept him as king. And so Jesus just looks around and goes off. And so it's a very, very sad, very, very sad time. So what does fear have to do with this? Look over to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Mark chapter 10, in verse 32 and following, give us the final events leading up to the triumphal entry. It is a time when Jesus has to know 
his disciples are fear, filled with fear. Look at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. This is toward the triumphal entry. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed. Who is? These are the disciples. And those who followed were fearful. You can underline that in your Bibles. If you don't have one of those digital Bibles on your phone. Okay? This is why we love our hard copy Bibles. You can underline it. They were fearful. They had phobia. They were afraid. They were afraid. And again, he took the 12 aside and began telling them what was going to happen. Now, when you look at this, you say, why would they be in fear? I mean, there's all these people that are following Jesus that looks like they're very supportive. There should be a situation of fear here. And I think Jesus recognizes it and what he does next and how Mark records it teaches us how to deal with fear. So that's why, hence my message, fear of the triumphal entry. And what we're gonna look at is three incidences, three events that I believe get the disciples ready to deal with what is about to happen and how to overcome their fear. So the background, the context is, is when you say to yourself, well, why are these people fearful? Is number one, we know that when we come to Mark chapter 10, this is, the chapter in which Jesus is moving from the north to the south. Remember, we said Mark chapter 10 covers this. Luke chapters 9 to 19 covers this. And Mark, I mean Matthew chapter 20 and 21 cover this material as well. This is the time when Jesus is dealing with the out-out opposition to uh, himself by the Jewish leadership. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are just not holding anything back. They are openly calling Jesus somebody in league with Satan, of all people. They are out and out against Jesus, and they've all also let it be known that they want to kill Jesus. So that's adding to the fear. I think also what's adding to the fear is the fact that the disciples know that there's throngs of people that are following Jesus, but they're really not committed. And like I said in a previous Online, online service that I said that when you look at the fact that Jesus has fed the 5,000 maybe a year, year and a half prior to this event here, what you have is at that event where the majority of people walk away. They don't want to be committed to Jesus. And I think that was indelibly impressed upon the disciples to know that the people who are now following Jesus and when they do come alongside are there just for the treats, just for the food, just for the healings. They're not there for the righteousness. They're not there to make a commitment to Jesus Christ. In essence, they know they're superficial. And you know, you know, you, when we're together in church and you see someone that sometimes is coming to church and the way they talk and the way they do things, you know that they're not really committed to Christ. For whatever reason, they're there. They're not really committed followers. And you know, if you had a whole bunch of people like that, you'd be frustrated. You'd be really exasperated. And so I think the disciples are looking around and they know that this incredible swell and crowd of people aren't people there that are committed to Jesus, hence adding to the fear. And then on top of that, Jesus has been telling his disciples for some time now, anywhere from six months to a year, and a half prior to this event, he's been telling them that he's going to die. And we're gonna see, he's gonna tell them one more time. But I know, based upon the way we outline the 
Synoptic Gospels, at least, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic meaning they have the same view, that we know back in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus started telling his disciples, maybe, like I said, a year, year and a half prior to this event, he's going to die. Here it comes one more time. And so if you got your sermon notes, what I want you to do is look at the very first event, and that is where Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. Now, at this point, you would think Jesus, recognizing that his disciples are in fear, his disciples are in trepidation, would turn and say, look, everything's going to be okay. Well, maybe in a sense he did, but he does it in an unusual way. Now, I'm going to show you, I believe this could be applied, all of this could be applied to us as we deal with this quarantine. Again, this passage isn't about a quarantine, but it's about how Jesus dealt with fear. And I believe we can make the application when we understand the very principles that are being taught here. So you pick up in Mark chapter 10, verse 33. And so saying, okay, saying Jesus is the one speaking, recognizing at the end of verse um, 32 that he took his 12 aside and he was going, he, he was telling them what was going to happen. And he was saying this, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and, and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So you have your sermon notes. I want you to fill in the blank. He knows the future. Because what does he do? The very first thing is that Jesus gives a prophecy. And what is a prophecy? A prophecy is the ability to tell what is going to happen in the future. The Bible is filled with prophecies. And one of the encouragements I would again, once again tell you is for the men... Come to our book, Study of Daniel, where we are able to reunite again. Because that is a book filled with prophecy. And so many prophecies in the book of Daniel. And there's prophecies throughout the Bible. There's hundreds of prophecies dealing with who Jesus is. And, and then there's hundreds of prophecies dealing where, where the world is going. Prophecy is one of the ways God uses to show that he's God. That he knows the future. He knows where things are going to um, land. How things are going to work out. And when you're a spokesman for God, and whether it was an Old Testament prophet or a New Testament prophet, you had to always be 100% accurate. And we base that upon Deuteronomy chapter 18. Because in Deuteronomy 18, if a prophet said anything and it didn't come true, he was to be killed. Okay? Now, you've got to think about that. If a person went out and they said, male, a male or female prophet, because you would have male prophets, you have female prophets, and they gave out 100 prophecies, and 99 of those prophecies came true. But one of them was wrong. You died. Why? Because you had to be 100% accurate. I got a friend that's in seminary now, very um, great student, and he lets me read some of his tests, and he does very well, and he, he'll get a 99, he'll get a 98, and I think, wow, how great he's, he's, he's doing. And um, I read his test, and I'm not even sure where, <laughs> where he gets wrong things wrong. But I think, wow, how hard is it when you even have a good student like him, and he can't get hundreds, that all of a sudden, you gotta be a prophet, and you gotta always get it right? Exactly, because what does a prophet do when they give their prophecies? They show that somehow, some way, they're connected to God. And we know Jesus, being God as well as tied to God the Father, 
is exactly that. And what it does for you and for me is it tells us Jesus knows what's going on. He knows what's ahead. He, he doesn't want to avoid the pain. He also knows he's going to be resurrected. And what he's trying to say is everything's going to be okay. So what does that do for you and for me today? How does this help us? You know, without going through all the details of this specific prophecy, other than we just know the generalities that he's going to go, he's going to be tried, he's going to be unlawfully convicted, he's going to go through a horrible scourging, horrible trial. I mean, after the trial, he's going to go through this horrible crucifixion. And then ultimately, when all looks lost, he's going to be resurrected. Sort of that kind of gets lost, that last line at the end of verse 34. He will rise again, doesn't it? I, but what Jesus wants his disciples to know is he knows the future. And I said this in our previous podcast, I mean, broadcast as well as podcast, that as Billy Graham used to say, when he got down, he got discouraged, he'd go to the end of the book. And at the end of the Bible, the end of the book, we are resurrected. God makes everything new. He wipes away every tear. And I'd encourage you to get discouraged. Read the book of Revelation, which is primarily a prophecy. And if God is right about what was going to happen with Jesus, going through the, <laughs> the incredible trial and death that he did, and also being resurrected, shouldn't we, shouldn't we believe God's word too and find comfort I just went through a few things just that I think are relatable to us in the day and age in which we live. I mean, first and foremost, God has said in the day and age in which we live from the time of his ascension into heaven until the time until he returns, that this will be a time that would be difficult for the world. It'd be a time of tribulation. John chapter 15, Jesus says the world is going to hate you to his disciples. Well, sure enough, that prophecy has come true and is coming true still. And so we gotta know that however things are playing out, that the world is never gonna accept us as Christians. And then in John 16, Jesus says that in this world, you're gonna have tribulation. The people who follow him as well as I just think it's secondarily, we're gonna fall in the world. Things are not gonna be right. It's part of the curse of Genesis chapter three. That's a prophecy. And, and so, Going through a pandemic, going through a quarantine, all fits that this is a fallen world and things are difficult. Also, we know, and we're gonna get into more detail about this, that the world is rushing towards a one world type of government. And look how quickly things have changed in America. We're gonna do a study on this in a couple weeks uh, on one of our online broadcasts that we're gonna talk about how all this is tying into end times. But just briefly, it is. And so this should put us all at peace. God's got this in control. Even though he's letting the world move towards its end, he ultimately is still in control. And so we're gonna be lights in this world. And, and then finally, I just think when we look at prophecies, so we have prophecies about the fact that we're gonna be hated, that there's prophecies about the world, always being in an unsettled state and there's going to be tribulation in this world. We have prophecies about the fact that we're leading towards an end times. Don't we also have prophecy about the fact that we're going to be resurrected? That they're going to, there's going to be a heaven on earth? Don't we know all of that is true? So when we look at prophecy, you better believe it helps us deal with fear. 
fear for now and just like Jesus gave his disciples prophecy when they had fear going into the triumphal entry. I believe it was a way of saying, hey, things are gonna be okay. But it doesn't stop there. I really think that, that the next event is one that you can look at where Jesus is trying to get us the right mindset to deal with a fearful situation. Because it's a text of scripture in which the disciples are asking about how to be blessed. And Jesus says, wait a second, you've got something to go through first. Look at verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Very kind of Jesus. Verse 37, they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? Basically, do you think you can go through what I'm about to go through? The hardship and the difficulty? And they said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. Did you catch that? They said we're able, and guess what? They did. They went through persecution. They went through hardship. They went through difficulty. But now the disciples that are listening, the other 10, hear this, and they feel indignant, okay? They're a little bit upset and because they think they're not going to get rewarded. And so calling them to himself, Jesus says this in verse 42. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the second event is that Jesus Christ gives a teaching on leadership. Well, how does this help me deal with fear? Well, fill in the blank with the idea he expects us to suffer in service to or also. So if I didn't tell you what the other one, I think I did tell you what the first one, fill in the word with the word future. He knows the future. Now he says he expects us, expects us, E-X, P-E-C-T-S. He expects us to suffer in service too. See, I think this isn't by accident here. Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be a reward ahead, and I am going to put you guys in position of prominence, but I want you to be different types of leaders. I want you to be the people that are different than the world's type of leaders, and I want to set you out as servants, servants who are going to suffer, servants who are going to be um, going through hardship. And I believe this is to be the model for the church. And so it's the way I wanted to serve. I that with the expectation of our elders, our deacons, that we don't always have the easiest. We have the longer hours. We have the sacrifices. And not looking for any commendation on that, but just the idea of this is what you should expect amongst your pastor, your elders, your deacons, anyone that serves in the church. But it isn't just so that the pastor serves this way or the elders serve this way. It's so that everybody has the same mindset. This is the mindset that God wants people in the church today to go through. This is why this passage is referred to over and over through the years. You have any type of leadership seminar, you go through a, 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 a seminary course, they want us to have, 
as pastors, as future pastors when we are in seminary, to have this mindset. Ultimately, because the idea is if you serve, then people in the church serve. And as our dear brother Lou Clark said, serving is never convenient. And I'll never forget on the day that I was uh, um, installed as the pastor here at Christian Fellowship Church back in 1996, that Lou Clark talked about the fact that um, the fact that the church will only go as far as my service and, the, and my leadership, right? And the idea that day was to have a servant's mindset. And I hope that I've had that. I hope that I've demonstrated that amongst you. And I can tell you, as uh, a dear sister in the Lord once said, that came to our church, that as a pastor, you have to have a heart of butter, but the, the, the skin of an elephant. Because the idea is when you're in leadership, whether you're the pastor, and, and it's the same for our elders, that it's hard and it's difficult and there's a lot of sacrifice. And I know that whether it's Carl or Sean, they're constantly sacrificing to serve and their families uh, deal with that as well. And I know that it's the same with our deacons. What's the whole mindset here? Is that life on this side of eternity isn't going to be easy. And we have to have the mindset to be people to go out and serve. And, and what I want you to do, and I want you to think about this, is that you have this quarantine happening. How are you serving in it? You've got all this extra downtime. Are you praying? Are you reaching out to people, even using the social distancing however you can? Whatever you can do, are you doing something now in this hardship to say, look, instead of just having... 10 hours at home where I do nothing, boy, I now have the time to pray for two, three hours. I now have more time to pray, more time to study, more time to write notes to people about the gospel, more time to reach out on Facebook to people about the gospel, send emails to it. Listen, it's hard and it's difficult, but instead of living in fear, remember in the previous um, online service, I talked about the fact that when we go through times of fear, it could make us not want to act. It could paralyze us. Well, God doesn't want us to be paralyzed. He doesn't want us to say, oh my, we, we've got these difficult days ahead of us and we've got this service. We're not gonna do anything. No, when we go back and we look at this text with James and John, they were people who did put their necks in line and they never stopped serving until they died. And that's the expectation for you as well. And that's why when we look at the disciples, and we, we know Judas goes by the wayside, but every one of the disciples out of the remaining 11, they will be martyred for their faith except for John. And they tried to kill John, but they couldn't because God needed John to finish the book of Revelation, the final prophecy. Now listen to me. I, I, I'm going to throw this. This is like a little bonus. Turn in your Bibles to Mark, I mean to Luke chapter 19. I found this interesting, and this ties with service and the way we have a mindset in the way that we go out and we do things to even today for Jesus and we serve in the church. In Luke chapter 19, recognizing that from verse 19, 11 to 27 is the last event that Luke records regarding the triumphal entry. Remember I've said Luke 9.19 has all this long material on how Jesus was preparing his disciples to get ready for while he was gone. 
Luke 19, verse 28 picks up the triumphal entry. But it is in Luke 19 to uh, 19, 11 to 27 that you get a parable, not on the talents, but on the minas. Mina was about 100 days worth of work. That Jesus gives this final instruction. And I think this was also preparation for the disciples as they were about to enter a period that was very difficult for them. So we pick up in verse 11, it says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. Where? Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. And they proposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately, okay? And so he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. See, Jesus recognizes, he knows he's gonna die, he's gonna ascend, he's gonna, after he resurrects, he's gonna ascend, he's gonna, it's gonna be a long time before he comes back. So this is the mindset that he wants his disciples to have. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. And when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. And the first appeared saying, master, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very few little thing, you are gonna have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, your mina has made five minas. Verse 19, and he said to them also, are you to be over, and you are to be over five cities. So this is interesting. This isn't the same as the 10, the, the, the parable of the talents. He had 10 minas, and he, I believe he gave it to 10 servants. Each one of them got one. This is a little bit different. Verse 13, I try to figure this out, that each one got one. And so only three of them are given in this report. The first two we've seen, one took the one all the way to 10, the other one took one all the way to five. But this is what I want you to see, okay, is that these people were showing their ingenuity, how they could take what minimum they had and use it for God because that is what God expected of them. He expected them to take what they've been given, what's been put before them and use it. What did the third one say? Verse 20, and another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, and I was afraid of you. I was afraid of you. Now, I was not saying I'm afraid of a quarantine, I'm afraid of a virus, I'm afraid of you. But basically, fear dominated his life. And God says, you know what? You don't have the right mindset you're gonna see. You don't, you don't really think I'm gonna play this game, that you couldn't do anything, that you lived a paralyzed life, that you didn't act for me. Look at verse 21. For I was afraid of you, this guy goes on to say, because you are an exacting man and, and, and you take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. So he turns around and blames this master. And I don't want any of us to say, oh, you know, God, we know that you're sovereign and we know that you're in control of everything and you could have stopped the virus, but you didn't, but you let it happen. And we were all marching towards eternity and end times, but we didn't do anything because we were stuck. I don't want any of you to say this. God has already told us with the, the idea of the servants having the, the leaders having the mindset that they're gonna serve and be like slaves, but recognizing that you're gonna put some ingenuity to this. You're supposed to put some effort to this. And so verse 22, here you get God's response. And he said to them, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. 
Did you not know that I'm an exacting man, taking up what I did, I, I did not lay down and reaping that I, what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, and, and so after that rebuke, basically, I think he played along with them, at least in this passage, and he basically says, you should have at least done something. You could have done something, but you didn't even try. It was all an excuse. And so verse 24, then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, master, he has 10 minas already. I tell you that everyone who has more shall be given, but the one who does not have, even what he does not have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. That's pretty harsh. That's the kind Jesus who holds little sheep in the pictures that are around the world where Jesus is more like a pacifist. No, this is the where Jesus is talking, I believe, ultimately about hell. And, and the idea of slay them in my presence. I mean, it's, it's pretty harsh. But it's the people who come up with all their excuses to not do anything with what God has given them. And so listen, my appeal to you, my begging to you, and if you is to use whatever ingenuity, whatever thing you can. God has taken away your inability to interact with people. He's given you more time to pray, more time to study, more time to write people, more time to send cards, more time to somehow do something to reach out to people. And it's going to be harder. It, it's going to be more limiting, right? And prayer is hard, and, and maybe writing is hard, and doing something for other people is hard and difficult. But remember, when you go back to Mark chapter 10, the whole idea is that we have to recognize that the type of leadership that we're supposed to have today and the type of service we're supposed to be is, a, is going to be hard and difficult. We're not just to sit back and say, well, we've got all these blessings, we're kingdom citizens, and we're waiting for the kingdom, and so we're gonna start living as if we're in the kingdom. We're not in the kingdom. And so the idea is, we must be people that remembers verse 45 because the ultimate model isn't just the disciples. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We know that Jesus paid the penalty for sin, right? And he did it in this upside down world where God used evil for good. And so now you've got this evil of this pandemic. Use it for good. So the second event, Jesus gives a teaching on leadership. And he expects us to suffer too. Well, let's just go to the third incident. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 to 52. Then they came to Jericho. And Jericho is now like two miles out. We're about two miles away from Jerusalem, right? And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out saying, Jesus, son of God, David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up. He's calling for you. Throw, throwing aside his, his cloak, he, he, he jumped up and came to Jesus, verse 50 says. So verse 51. In answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. And then verse 1 of chapter 11, and as they approached Jerusalem. So listen, what, what is that all about? 
Why put this here? This is a healing. You look at your sermon notes and it says Jesus heals a blind man. That's the third event. Healing is when you make someone better. And we've learned and seen that Jesus has been doing this in preponderance amount of cases. And, and Jesus has been raising people from the dead. Jesus has been turning water into wine, walking on water, but doing a lot of healing and especially of blind people. It's one of the key things that you see throughout the Gospels. Why do we have this one final healing? Why does Jesus heal this blind man and why is it placed here? Because I truly believe, fill in the blank, he shows his power one more time. It's just simple. He just shows his power, his ability to have the authority over creation. That's what power is, authority. His ability to handle creation in any way. He can restore someone's sight. He can take that which is inoperative, the eyes, the, the flesh, whatever, the optic nerve, whatever, and he can restore it because he has the power. And, and what we need to know is that God has the power over the world. And if he does and he's allowing the world to go to a one world government, he's allowing the world to go towards its end times, it's only because he's allowed it. He is sovereign. And if Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem and then be rejected and then go through the trial and then go through the crucifixion and then ultimately die, it's because he allowed it. And like I alluded to it, God uses evil for good. Genesis chapter 15, we see this explicitly for the first time when it's said regarding Joseph that his brother sold him into slavery, not because, not because it was a nice thing to do, but because it was evil. But God used it to move and to shape Joseph into a position where he was the second most powerful person in the entire world. Joseph wouldn't have naturally gone down to Egypt. He had to be sold into slavery. God used it. And God uses evil and bad things to accomplish his purposes in this fallen world. Genesis chapter 3, it's a sin-cursed world. And so in this world today, does God have the power to stop this virus? Absolutely. Will God heal the people that we're praying for? Yes, for some. No, for others. I, I don't know, again, and it's Deuteronomy 29, 29, 29, 22. I think it's a 29, 22 in the last, last broadcast, but it's 29, 29. The secret things belong to God. God has his plan. And we've just got to be able to say, all right, if you've got your plan and things are happening that we don't like, it's not that you can't stop them because you've got the power to stop them. I know that you can. And so I'm going to rest in this that you have power. If you can heal a blind man, you can take me when I'm dead because of a coronavirus and resurrect me. And if I die from a coronavirus, it's because you've allowed it, not because the world got to me. And if I died because I stood up for Christ in this time, so be it. Because ultimately, you have the power of God to resurrect me. And I want to be able to say that I was faithful during this time. And I don't want to be the person that lives in fear and is paralyzed and doesn't stand up for God. And we studied that passage last week that dealt with facing persecution 
And you know, what, is, what do the persecutors want you to do? They want you to shut up. They don't want you to talk about Jesus. But God says, no, stand up. Because be a testimony for me. Be that light on the hill. Because we are to be people that don't let the fear of man stop us. Let alone a virus stop us. Now again, for now, there's no reason for us to violate any laws. We can abide by the quarantine to the extent that we have to by, by what the government is asking us to do. But in the meantime, though, use this time. Recognize that fear shouldn't overcome you. There's not, it's not an accident that the last event, at least in Mark, that explicitly talked about the fear that the people were facing, that there was a miracle of healing. And I believe that the final miracle of healing will be the resurrection. So three ways that I believe that Jesus wants us to deal with fear. Just the knowledge that he knows the future. The knowledge that he expects us to suffer in service to. Whatever difficulties we face, it's not a surprise to him. And that he has power. He has power to handle anything that this creation throws to us. Look, the disciples knew there was rumblings of hatred towards Jesus from the Jewish leadership. They knew the crowd wasn't really committed. They knew that Jesus himself had been warning them about his upcoming death. And so, look, Jesus wanted them to be prepared. And he wanted them to know that he knew the future. He wanted them to expect that when he was gone, that they needed to serve and it was gonna be not easy, it was gonna be hard. And he had the power that no matter what happened, he could fix things. He could fix things. And so, let me leave you with one more statistic, okay? Here's an interesting stat. And I think you could share this with neighbors and friends, any unbeliever. 100% of the people who place their faith in Jesus Christ will be resurrected no matter what they face on earth. 100%. You believe that Jesus was God and man who died on the cross and was resurrected on that third day. And you believe it by faith alone. You too can have eternal life for everyone. Go back and look at those passages in Romans chapter 10. Everyone that confesses his name. And there's no discrimination. Everyone who comes to Jesus Christ will be resurrected. We'll have eternal life. I hope you believe that. Go out now and serve without fear. And when the next time Jesus comes, it's not going to be the same type of triumphal entry. It's not going to be a situation where he comes and nothing happens. He's coming to rule. And when he rules, it's permanent. And I pray it comes soon. But in the meantime, let's be faithful. And let's live a life without fear.